Sam Yushi. The goal of this podcast is to showcase people who are living with intention, working hard to align actions with priorities, and ultimately to provide a platform of inspiration for those seeking to live a life rooted in purpose. First, I hope this finds you safe and healthy with pockets of positivity to lift your days. We're in unprecedented times with the COVID-19 pandemic that has challenged our world more than we could ever have imagined. But in this crisis, we've seen some of the very best in humanity, and through that lens, we find hope for a better tomorrow. This episode was recorded just prior to the COVID-19 stay-at-home orders, but the conversation provides a glimpse into the positive agents of change that were in motion prior to the pandemic that will help lead our collective ability to navigate through and beyond this crisis. Shelly Kurtz is the co-founder of Giving Tech Labs, a Seattle-based company focused on sustainable technology for public interest. The organization brings artificial intelligence, data sciences, and scale tech solutions to the nonprofit and social impact space. Shelley's extensive media background working for companies like NBC Universal and Comcast, combined with co-founder Luis Salazar's tech background, including time at Microsoft, where he was co-founder of Office 365, delivers digital and business best practices to lead innovation in areas that yield incredible societal gains. Giving Tech Labs is the first organization that I've encountered that formally engages the Ikigai philosophy in a strategic manner. Ikigai impacts everything from their strategic decision-making to associate development, and Shelley contends that the group believes that this philosophy is the future of work. Shelley confidently states that her personal Ikigai is human connection and provides context from her personal journey as the daughter of a Cuban immigrant father and a mother from an Oregon farm. As the oldest child, Shelley was the first to graduate from college in her family, which paved the way for a career in media. And as she moved up the corporate ladder to become an executive, she found that she was ultimately seeking more. Through human connection, her personal ikigai, she met Louise, and in 2017, Giving Tech Labs was born. Shelley and I discussed the book The Second Mountain by David Brooks as an influence on both of our respective journeys that can best be summarized by saying that one's definition of success should be deeply meaningful, purpose-driven, and personal. And oftentimes, that definition doesn't reflect the traditional depiction of success. Through Giving Tech Labs, Shelley's successfully climbing that second mountain. Now, please enjoy this episode of Ikigai Stories with Shelley Kurtz, co-founder of Giving Tech Labs, an Ikigai advocate leading sustainable technology for public interest. Shelly, thank you for being here. Thank you. I will, I'll let you talk first and then I'll answer, but I get excited to talk to people I'm ex- that I don't normally see. I'm excited to, uh, to talk to you for many reasons. Uh, and I think the first thing I'd like to start off with is Giving Tech Labs. So if you can just jump right into Giving Tech Labs and share uh, what Giving Tech Labs does and what do you do for the organization. Sure. Well, thanks again for having us. Uh, Giving Tech Labs is a little bit of a different kind of company because there's not a lot of others doing exactly what we're doing in this space, which is bringing together this concept that you can do good 
and do well. And what we mean by that is that we have created a technology company that at the core isn't all that different from a lot of the software companies operating here in Seattle and around the world. We believe in revenue and sustainability. We need to keep the lights on and pay salaries, but we also believe in looking at the social impact that we create in terms of the products that we are ideating and in terms of the way in which the organizations we help support are thinking about impact in the same way that you know where your stock is because you're looking at very clear KPIs that the market has defined. Mm -hmm. What are the earnings per share? What is the revenue? What are some of those indicators that everyone has on a common dashboard when they're evaluating businesses? And in the nonprofit sector and in the social impact space, there's really been a lack of, I think, clear impact metrics. And a lot of it has been because the work has been done on the ground in very siloed organizations or structures mm -hmm. or um, individual parts of the sector that don't have a lot of data sharing and there isn't really an infrastructure that supports M&A or sort of consolidation of, of ideas and best practices and even leadership changes the way that we have it in the private sector. So what Giving Tech Labs is at the core fundamentally is a technology company and we focus on creating sustainable technology for public interest. It's an innovation lab and so that's why we call ourselves um, Giving Tech Labs and what we do inside of the Innovation Center is really focus on how we can use AI and data sciences to up-level insights in a way in which right now we tend to look at information and we want to really shift that into looking at knowledge. And mm -hmm. in order to do that, it's a huge amount of sort of system change in the way that you think about structurally how to architect solutions and how you think about discovering information about a topic that you're passionate about. So for example, our AI team is led by our chief data scientist, Dr. Yun Lee. And we're focusing on a body of work right now that uh, is looking at the creation and construction of knowledge graphs. Hmm. And that sounds pretty technical, but a knowledge graph is a different way to think about the relevancy of search content. So if you were to look up, I don't know, Ikigai, for mm -hmm. example, you would most likely go to a search engine. I won't name them, but I'm sure there's probably a primary one you use. And you might search Ikigai. You're going to get a ton of content, some of which is really relevant, might be academic in nature, might be um, foundational in terms of some of the work that um, has been studied or maybe historical. There's a lot of good stuff, and there's a lot of garbage that you may read the origin story um, that could take you down to be selling you a particular line of services or you know you kind of get to the end and you realize this was ad supported content that was really essentially fake news and there's mm -hmm. a lot of content out there that is a lot more dangerous if you're not looking at something like Ikigai and looking instead for um, perhaps cures or treatment for your child that may have been diagnosed with autism mm -hmm. or some other um, 
you know, health concern and you're really seeking answers. And the problem today is that we have such a proliferation of information that you don't know how to separate that real knowledge, those really sort of centers of truth, the trusted sources from all the other content mm. out there. And so what we're looking to do now is focus on a body of work that is creating a new type of search experience for domain level expertise on particular topics, but also harnessing all of the wonderful data from the nonprofit sector and from all of the trusted sources that should be getting page one exposure that mm. right now may only be um, you know, 18 pages down. And so when you're really trying to create centers of knowledge, you need to start from a place where you understand the ground truth. Mm. And uh, today we don't go to libraries and look at textbooks the same way that 50 years ago, you know, we did have the opportunity to look into trusted sources. And so that's one body of work we're really excited about. And we are also creating individual tech solutions meeting specific mission delivery needs in the field. So we're kind of an incubator for our own social enterprises that we sort of test and hope to go to market in different ways that we are focusing on that return on investment, mm -hmm. that traditional sort of ROI and the business case in terms of product market fit as well as the return of social impact and looking at how many children are protected or what is the, um, the economic savings to those agencies involved in that particular area where technology has now created efficiencies. Mm -hmm. So that was a long way to answer a very simple um, sort of one-liner of what Giving Tech Labs is, which is an innovation lab for the creation of technology for public interest. At the heart of the innovation, is it always information to knowledge? Is it always, is that at the core of what you're doing? Or is, mm -hmm. through that innovation lab, does it take different forms? No, I think so. I don't think that it was as um, specifically focused early on um, with that intention in mind. But now that we have really spent the last two and a half years studying the problems in the sector, studying the opportunity for technology to enable mission delivery, it has sort of come to this core center mm -hmm. truth, which is the nonprofit sector is very data rich and knowledge thirsty. Mm -hmm. There is such intense focus on academic research and creating a lot of relevant source data for governments and nonprofit organizations but without the ability to create some data aggregation and cloud computing methodology to really source, crowdsource this content, it's very difficult. And um, even if we're creating a specific solution that might have sort of a, um, a point opportunity to have impact, the really critical piece that was missing is usually not just the automation but it's the fact that you have real-time reporting and data-driven insights mm -hmm. that before might have just been hunches yeah. or might have been tracked through a few Excel spreadsheets or worse, what often happens is the guy that knows how to do it right. or the way it's always been done yeah. or go ask Carol. Yeah. She knows why we do it this way. And so there's sort of this oral history that gets handed down through organizations, which is very powerful and meaningful. And so it's not meant to replace that. 
it's meant to say, let's make a virtual Carol. <laughs> if mm -hmm. Carol knows it all, then let's translate Carol's knowledge um, so that that can be accessible for all. Where does Carol go? Where are her reference documents? Who does she trust? And let's make that open to all. Okay. Uh, that's great. Um, so can you talk about uh, just how long Giving Tech Labs has been around mm -hmm. and what was the catalyst behind Giving Tech Labs where it started? Sure. We started Giving Tech Labs in July of 2017. It was founded by Luis Salazar and myself. Luis is a brilliant visionary and a serial technologist, serial entrepreneur who spent the better part of his career at Microsoft where he eventually was the co-creator of what became Office 365 and worked very closely with Jeff Rakes, who I know you're very familiar with. And for those of you listening who aren't, uh, Jeff is an incredible person and um, has um, really created this beautiful mosaic of impact, I think. Of course, I'm biased, but he's now a philanthropist with his wife, Tricia, and they run the Rakes Foundation. And he's also um, the head of the Board of Trustees at Stanford University and has a lot of thought leadership around what it means to create the higher education institution of the future. He's personally passionate about issues of equity and is writing often in national publications and speaking on that topic. He's on the board at Costco and uh, has a whole host of other interests, including being a part owner of the Mariners and many other things that would take the whole podcast to, to <laughs> share. Um, but when uh, Luis was really working through one of his um, startups, he sort of back, backed into, I guess, um, a social enterprise that was meant to sort of have commercial applications and ended up really having tremendous social impact. And he and Jeff stayed in touch and Jeff really encouraged him to seek the opportunity to use technology in an entrepreneurial approach to solving big social problems. And along that same journey, I was coming uh, to the sort of place in my career where I was really looking to lean in on uh, community and having social impact. And Luis and I teamed up in 2017 to really find a way that we could harness our perspective coming from the private sector and infusing some of the best practices and learnings into the social sector, but hopefully also being a bridge so that we didn't come into it with this arrogant attitude of elitism that technology was going to save the world, mm. but really trying to understand and listen, ask a lot of questions about why was it that we had such a different ecosystem that um, really did not translate to any strong bridges from the private sector to the nonprofit sector. Yeah. I don't know, maybe you know of others, but you know, from our vantage point, um, it seemed to operate in a world in which very few leaders or even uh, program officers went from one side to the other. So there really wasn't a knowledge transfer between nonprofit organizations and tech companies or even broader um, private companies. And my background is media and entertainment and also I came through a public affairs 
aspect and, and broadcast television, but we came from a perspective, both Luis and I, that we knew you could build something once and serve millions, or in the case of Microsoft, billions. Mm -hmm. And so looking yeah. on the other side, where nonprofit organizations we spoke with hoped to perhaps in five years um, grow from serving 50 organizations to 100, we knew that we needed to be able to sort of amplify the work that was being done on the ground that was just not getting the kind of um, multiplier effect that we yeah. knew was possible. Yeah. And so when yeah. we started looking at the opportunity and trying to figure out what was the missing link, it was fascinating to realize that there were over a million public charities in the US and many people would say, oh, yeah, but there's no money in nonprofits. How can they afford technology? And the truth is that it's a $2 trillion economy. Mm -hmm. And most people don't realize that it's not that there are not dollars. It's that there's a mindset that fundamentally, I think, forces organizations to have a scarcity mindset. Mm. I think there's also, um, in their defense, there's a bad taste in their mouth about technology because it has perhaps been deployed in ways in which it's created more loopholes, more bureaucracy, another step, because yeah. the technology that often gets to nonprofit organizations is the sort of last mile. By the time it's there, it's often already versions, years, you know, platforms behind right. on, you know, what is being used um, you know, with companies that are uh, publicly traded or, you know, more generally consumer friendly. And we believe fundamentally that if we're going to solve the big problems of our time, we need to start there, not only building solutions from the ground up to address specific social problems that perhaps later can have commercial applications, but also thinking about how we can excite those of us who really do care about making the world better to get involved not from the outside perhaps with donations although that's great you should all support organizations you're passionate mm -hmm. about but what about helping young people go to college and have a different perspective about what they can do and what is possible so that instead of thinking that if they want to eventually be able to to buy a home and have a family they have to trade their soul somehow mm -hmm. and then later on down the road they'll get to do what they really want to do mm -hmm. and so we would sort of challenge people to think differently that you should be doing what you can do and what you want to do through the way that you can most express your ikigai so mm -hmm. it kind of comes full circle to what we're talking about today so that's a, a lot but I, I think that um you know, when Luis and I started the company, we didn't have a grand plan to come into where we are now, focusing on um, a science-based approach, mm -hmm. looking at how to harness data to create knowledge. But where we realized there were so many wonderful organizations and people working so damn hard, we just wanted to be able to amplify that work. And the only way to do that is to create knowledge. Mm. And knowledge is not easily transferred using a one-to-one -one methodology. So we're going to have to scale up right. uh, in order to serve. And so we have really looked at helping support organizations that may have an acute need, either in thinking about their business model in a fundamentally different way, 
which sounds even kind of icky for them to even hear the word business when they are focusing on supporting immigrants or mm-hmm. um, homeless populations or um, helping to protect victims of human trafficking. But the reality is, if you're not in the business of, of being sustainable, you really are not going to be able to have any impact at all. Right. And so there's nothing dirty about making sure that you have the ability to see revenue in a way that can amplify the work you're doing, but also scale up um, the mission delivery. And so we try to look at ways in which organizations can become more self-sufficient and not reliant upon large grants, but we also try to help educate grant makers and funders that if they're not investing in technology, they're going to be left behind Mm -hmm. and that this is the way to create additional reach and to be able to really iterate quickly and see what's working and what's not. So we help organizations with not only the technology to create digital transformation, but sometimes very specific areas where they could be monetizing differently, potentially positioning themselves differently with um, with grant makers or elevating their thought leadership to be able to really think about how they collaborate with others in the space to be able to hopefully solve that root problem that they are really trying to impact. So how much of this cascaded down from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and Warren Buffett's donation because it, it seems like that there was that letter that um, the business roundtable. No, there was a letter there a couple of years ago. I think it, it was basically you know Buffett gave a huge donation, and it was I think Melinda had written the letter. Maybe it was both of them. Probably it was both of them um, about how they're being responsible with this forty billion dollar gift he has given. Is that Connecting any, di- I mean, it's what you're talking about sounds pretty familiar sure, to sure. what I recall. In yeah, that, I mean, I think that, that everything is timing, and certainly we are influenced by leadership in a lot of different spheres of influence. And being here in Seattle, you can't help but be influenced by you know great leadership in philanthropy, and also by the scale and reach of companies like Amazon and Starbucks and Microsoft and others that have literally been born during our generation um, as business people. But the philanthropic capital that has been dedicated to help solve the biggest problems has been really um, sort of shared in ways that in some ways create really huge impact. And one of that uh, those examples was the Gates Foundation's uh, really work to, to end polio. And some of the big bets that Jeff Rakes took when he was CEO of the Gates Foundation and that type of really large-scale uh, philanthropy um, really unlocked in a way that we have used as a model, that um, if they would have been trying to solve polio eradication by working with individual organizations in sub-Saharan Africa, mm-hmm they could have made effective changes perhaps to maybe systems in those individual countries, maybe you know getting more vaccines to children, perhaps creating some public service education campaigns. But in order to really make the kind of large scale impact that they did, they needed to completely reimagine how the dynamic 
um, needed to shift. And that meant going all the way upstream, working with the manufacturers and the researchers to develop a vaccine that then they paid the underwriting to private companies in mm -hmm. a way that if you were looking at a traditional philanthropy model would have been reserved only for nonprofit organizations at okay. the end of the supply chain. Instead, mm -hmm. they went upstream and catalyzed the R&D. So once those costs were removed, now countries can purchase the vaccine at a very low cost, I think less than a dollar per vaccine. Mm -hmm. And now it's a sustainable ability for governments and nonprofit organizations and communities to be able to eradicate the disease on their own with, of course, operating dollars and continued efforts with NGOs. Mm -hmm. So that was definitely influential in the way that we started thinking about the need to upscale and level set where the problem areas are and helping organizations understand that if they really want to create big impact, we need to think about understanding the problems in a way that solutions can be built at a platform level and um, resources shared by multiple organizations as opposed to smaller point solutions happening within organizations based on the budget that they can afford, right? right? It right. wasn't as if, yeah. um, you know, Gates yeah. Foundation worked with an individual country and said, okay, well, here's, um, you know, here's $4 million. Let's try to solve polio. You yeah. know, they went all the way up. Yeah. And um, so you have to make those big bets sometimes. So absolutely, I think that the influence of our region, uh, I think that the onset of cloud computing and mobile technology proliferation, the ability of data science to really become accessible mm -hmm. in ways in which we can use it for social impact and create in some ways AI as a service, I think puts us in a really unique position that a lot of organizations would not be able to have this type of an approach. But uh, we have a lot of work to do and we're really excited about Really, I think the opportunity to create some models that hopefully will create thousands more organizations like Giving Tech Labs. Yeah. We don't have any dreams of world domination. We really hope to inspire others to take this type of approach and to catalyze change, focusing on data and focusing on listening as opposed to coming in with a solution to serve and finding out later that perhaps there was adoption and no real impact and yeah. i think that's what happens often yeah. even with well-meaning well-intentioned companies there are corporate social responsibility programs that had all of the right pieces and yet if you don't have the stakeholders at the table to begin with to say what they really need um, often those those programs fall flat. Flat. yeah they yeah. do what does giving tech labs look like in terms of an offering today or mm. what are you focusing on mm -hmm. currently uh, we have a team right now that is focusing on developing algorithms and new models to create AI for the public interest. And it's mm. a fellowship program that is led by our chief scientist. So that is one division of our organization that is looking at everything from voice technology mm -hmm. to these domain-specific knowledge graphs. And uh, we're also trying to create capacity in the field. As I mentioned, there is a lack of this type of approach in general. So we want to build the muscle of the sector. So hopefully these young people that are going to universities and focusing on 
um, research or engineering or computer science or mathematics can now come out of fellowship with a new understanding of how to apply their ikigai to helping address social challenges. Mm -hmm. So we really want to sort of train the field more broadly. And we're doing that both with practical applications inside the lab as sort of the R&D engine and creating academic white papers and training um, a team of fellows that right now are um, mostly undergrad students and some uh, post-grad students. So that is one practice of the lab. Mm -hmm. And the other is focused on developing um, individual social enterprises that meet a specific need. And one was just recently uh, sort of graduated, and it's called Vedanix, and we're very proud of it. So we're just helping transition Vedanix on its own. But that is a social enterprise that we built from the ground up, and it protects children who are survivors of sexual assault, child abuse, and neglect, and is now available in, I think, 46 states nationwide in just over a year and um, serving over 700 agencies and really creating such amazing impact not only in the delivery of services for these organizations that were previously manually distributing content and we can talk later about a little bit more about Vedanix um, but also quantifying what does that mean from an economic perspective? And we have data that shows that already in just over a year, we've saved over a million dollars in those expenses. And then also the number of hours that have been saved and all of the coordination. So that's a really exciting venture that just went through a series A and is uh, now being born again in Omaha, Nebraska, mm -hmm. and being led by a world-class CEO. And so we do create independent ventures that are usually software-as-a-service license model companies and, uh, and focus on creating also a level of practice around supporting nonprofit organizations and digital transformation. So I think the three areas right now, as it were, if you came into Giving Tech Labs, you would see people working on one of those three impact areas, either developing the AI and the real data science practice or supporting creating technology for one of the individual ventures that has a specific social impact arena or helping support organizations that uh, need a little bit of assistance in crossing the chasm from traditional models and very sort of um, sidelined approach to technology where they were just buyers and now mm -hmm. looking at what does it mean to be creators mm -hmm. and uh, really helping them understand that it's possible for organizations to create technology that really is meaningful to create impact in ways in which they imagine it using their science and all of their secret sauce, all the ways they may have been doing things manually, and also harnessing the power of technology companies, whether it's giving tech labs or others, to create solutions for them based on those methodologies. And right now we're working on building a platform approach that will hopefully digitize what giving tech labs has been doing on the ground for the last couple of years which is instead of focusing on individual organizations or problems, 
it is going to be a place where people can come and list the real problems in their own words that they have mm. and technology solution providers can be really drawn to create those applications hearing that voice of the customer and yeah. that these two sectors can find each other and in our utopian village version of the world, funders then would start understanding that if there is a demonstrated need that has already been scaled up to a systemic level and there are technologists willing to build it, that this can be an effective deployment of capital to be able to create impact across organizations and create data insights that never would have been possible mm. with individual RFPs and uh, grant making. And so that's really where our focus is and it will be um, coming soon, summer. And Mar Microsoft is a great partner in that work and, and focusing on just what we were talking about earlier, not giving tech labs, but creating lots of organizations like Giving Tech Labs and Vietnix that are born out of listening and understanding how to create sustainable solutions that are gonna be really addressing impact areas and then being able to report on outcomes downstream. So that's Tech for PI, correct? It is, yeah, there's a product name. So put your, that has, yeah, put your plug in there. Yeah, okay, well, it's a, you get to have a sneak peek guy podcasters uh it's uh it's going to be coming in the summer um i will say it is it's going to start with an x and that starts with <laughs> yeah it, that's we're just going to start there thanks it's, for the sneak preview yeah there's an x there's not a lot of websites that start with x so i feel like i'm giving you at least one out of 26 letters okay. to google okay. and right. you will find it this <laughs> summer I, I will give you the exclusive okay um that's powerful, though. That that makes a, a lot of sense. Do you find that that's, it's a challenge to try to get technologists involved in the nonprofit sector? Just the the the, the language that you were using mm -hmm. on two trillion and just the opportunity there is it oftentimes forgotten about or mm. or, or well, two trillion you, definitely gets their attention. I mean, that's larger than the enterprise software industry combined mm -hmm. it would i think we mentioned it'd be the 10th largest country by gdp so that is a way to speak their language the challenge is that they may be incentivized by the monetary opportunity but it's always the sort of how how do i get there because there isn't an easy channel and in most other markets there are identified channels if you are yeah. going to market in healthcare or professional mm -hmm. services or banking there's industry conferences and you could um, you know really create a network that was focused on that you could focus on value propositions and understand the, the sales environment there mm -hmm. go through distribution partners in sort of a you know an ISV channel type approach and it really doesn't exist with the nonprofit sector, even within like-minded issue areas. Hmm. There tends to be um, a very different type of an approach that you need to understand in order to be able to create 
I think, distribution that is efficient for technology companies because the traditional enterprise salesperson does not want to go knock on doors of individual nonprofit organizations. Yeah. And so we have to create the channel. And the, um, the platform that we're creating will be hopefully that online destination in the same way that when you want to get a recommendation for where to eat for dinner, you know which websites to go to for that. But if you want to know how to distribute a software solution to reach perhaps um, you know, immigration organizations, where do you go for that information? How do you mm. get there? How do you know um, how to price it and who will buy it and what you need to do from a product offering perspective? And that's what we're trying to create access towards and really unlock so that there is an efficient channel in between so that technologists can be excited not only for the opportunity to grow their market share in, in a way that is not cannibalizing existing markets. It's mm-hmm. a green field. It's mm-hmm. really creating a whole new pie, um, a new market segment that they're not addressing. But we need to also make sure that their solutions are relevant for this new consumer base, which often has not had a great experience with technology. And are very savvy in their program areas, but may not speak the language, literally the language. You were talking about words, and words matter. How do you Mm -hmm. talk about things? And we've had experiences where we have explained to a nonprofit leader that the solutions we create are cloud-based, and you can just go to a browser. And as we're talking through how to go to the website, the person has said, I don't have a browser. <laughs> and it, so- it sounds a little foreign for those of us who spend our days online and yeah. interacting with so many different websites. And uh, you probably do a ton of research and are constantly accessing um, the internet via all sorts of different browser um, stacks. But in this scenario, we needed to stop and think about how to create shared understanding without making that person feel any less valid. And so that's where you ask a question and you say, no problem. How do you get to the internet? And, you know, she told us the the picture on her icon on her desktop. (laughs) And we said, perfect, go to that picture. Just click on that picture. I won't name names of uh, which logo it was, but that's the part that unless technologists can pause for a moment Remove all the jargon, remove all the labels, and just understand that at the end of the day, these are people helping other people. Mm -hmm. And um, even from a purely economic standpoint, if technology companies are not serving a million organizations that are $2 trillion economy, we are only going to create bigger problems. And one of our mentors is an author by the name of Kentaro Toyama. And he wrote a book called Geek Heresy. And you should check it out. Your readers can note that in their uh, um, book list. But it really talked about the fact that technologists often have a hero mentality that we're going to come and save the world with these beautiful solutions. And often it's the social sector that needs to be saved from technology Mm. because it has been so poorly implemented. It hasn't been intuitive in its design. It hasn't taken into account the actual 
problem areas. And so it's really sometimes just added another layer of complexity that could have been done perhaps more efficiently, you know, the way that they used to do it. And uh, we believe that technology can be built for impact, but also for empathy and inclusion. And I think that aspect of inclusion needs to be thought through, not just in accessibility in terms of the way that we need to be appropriately thinking about um, people with intellectual disabilities or the different ways in which we may make our content accessible over different devices, but also inclusive in terms of understanding a different perspective. It's not um, uneducated, it's differently educated. I would not want to conduct a child forensic interview with, with a child who has been sexually assaulted, I wouldn't know where to begin and to do that kind of deep, heavy work. So who am I to sort of assume that because someone doesn't have the same language to describe the way technology works, um, that I can't help them do their job better? And so I would sort of challenge technologists to to think about the fact that they may not have a peer on the other side. There may not be a CTO to sell to. But if you really want to look at creating solutions that are going to stand the test of time, if you're only speaking to yourself, you are missing a huge opportunity for the market. And it's really rewarding work. We're here talking about Ikigai. And so if you can um, see the way that your solution or your technology or your company is really having long-term impact in an issue area, it's powerful, and we get really excited about the fact that this feeling is, I wish we could bottle it, right? Yeah. The way that I get to go to work every day and to create really cool sort of next-gen leading-edge technology solutions with our team, but I get to see the thank-you notes and the smiles on the faces of people that say, I can't believe that you did this for us. I can't believe you listened. And I can't believe how easy it is to use. It's like you just made it for me. Mm-hmm. That is when you know that you've done something right. If everyone feels that the solution is for them, it is about having that ability to make sure that inclusion is not just about you know making sure that um, you're thinking about color theory or you know certain design principles it's about making sure the right people are at the table to begin with and right. so that's yeah. really it's really hard downstream for a technology company to try to retrofit and shove into a new market whatever market that is but particularly in this very complex nuanced market of the nonprofit sector and um, social impact space but uh, if you can get them together and ask questions, you will understand very quickly that you have a huge opportunity. Well, in the speed of technology, right? So I smiled. I snickered a little bit when you said they didn't know what the browser mm-hmm. was. Of course. <clears throat> I snickered a little bit, but I'm, but I'm in a stage in life where I know there's stuff b- that I don't understand. My 10-year-old, I guarantee it. you, is my technical assistant, and I yeah. say that with no irony. I just yeah. got an iPhone Pro Max. I don't even know the what she would be able to tell you. She's the one that tells me all of the bells and whistles. She set it up for me. She transferred all of my data. 
and uh, I literally am the co-founder of a tech company. <laughs> so it's not lost on me that it doesn't matter how far we think we have come, it has already surpassed us. Right. It is moving at a speed right. that is almost unsustainable. Right. And so uh, I know that um, there are so many of us that uh, even when you sort of are ahead of the game at one point, um, just give it give it a second and you will be past far behind. Well, yeah, yeah the velocity is accelerating, right? It's not getting any slower. It's Absolutely. just getting faster. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you are not um, not such a young buck like me that I mean I literally remember when the internet was created I can't believe I just said that but I remember having a typewriter and um, you know my I was telling you my grandfather who's 90 was born in 1929 and just had heart surgery yesterday I can only imagine through his eyes what he has seen come and go and uh, it's fascinating and so when we talked about looking at that new type of search engine that new type of knowledge, it's because when the internet was created, there really was a graph, there was a map of all of the known sources of data, Mm -hmm. and you understood where that information was coming from. And now, when anyone can be a publisher of content, there are very thin lines between what can be trusted and uh, what is content that is living out there with search engine optimization and keywords and a lot of other relevancy that makes it on page one and is not the information that um, that should be given that kind of visibility. We used to have encyclopedias. Did you have encyclopedias? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, I yeah. had a whole set of Encyclopedia Britannica. I think it was 1986. Was there anybody else? Wasn't it Britannica and everybody else? Yeah, I don't know. They're yeah. the, the lead dog for yeah. sure in market share. So we yeah. had a set of red Encyclopedia Britannica, 1986. And I definitely had to use those same books for um, – the next a good a good chunk yeah, of yeah the next school. ten years absolutely <laughs> yeah. every yeah. day go look it up there yeah I still remember when the CD-ROM came out and that was mind blowing for Encyclopedia Britannica yes so one more question on so you had said when you and Luis initiated kick things off mm-hmm. there was like what you're doing now wasn't necessarily the vision was there something that happened along the way that you planted a flag and pivoted hard toward what you're doing now? Mm. There have been lots of sort of micro moments along the journey, to your point about how rapidly things have moved in the two and a half, three years of giving tech labs. There have been so many moments that we have sort of shifted and iterated. If you would have told me three years ago that we would have created the leading digital evidence management solution, for child advocacy centers and been influential in legislation and advocacy and creating different frameworks for funding and multidisciplinary teams, I would have told you you're crazy. I would have said, I don't know anything about child forensic interviews. What words are coming out of your mouth, Sam? Mm -hmm. So I think what has changed is we started realizing the depth of the problem and realizing that every conversation we had with a nonprofit leader or a subject matter expert, we kept having this same epiphany that 
was a shared experience, no matter how much they thought their problems were unique. And we realized that we really needed to focus on creating platforms and modules and shared learning and that the supply was uh, far smaller than the demand and that we could either clone ourselves and go completely Star Trek style. Um, and that is with um, complete humility that uh, it's, it, I don't think it has anything to do with Luis and I. I think it's the thirst for just having someone that asks those questions and that would listen and that could help people understand that their problem was not of shame or isolation. And um, I think once we realized that this wasn't about helping individual organizations thrive, that we needed to reimagine the whole system. Mm -hmm. That's where we realized we needed a whole lot more firepower. And this could not be a ground warfare approach going through um, specific issue areas or specific point solutions or working with funders or nonprofits to help them with digital transformation. We really needed to scale up and bring together the players that had not traditionally um, thought about evolving the model. And I think there's also been a really wonderful reception by the funding community in the time in which we have come along that they also understand that there needs to be a different way, that individually funding organizations to do, from a technology standpoint, some of the very similar things Mm -hmm. um, needs to create differences, di different kinds of efficiencies in that if there are technology solutions that can be built at a higher level to serve many organizations and ultimately help report on impact and alleviate the burden for those organizations and the funders, to be quite honest, if you think about what a grant maker needs to do to be able to even distribute that funding that they are fiscally um, responsible to actually distribute as mm -hmm. part of their charter, mm -hmm. it's a very inefficient process yeah. where there is you know, either a, a call for um, proposals and then s some human or mm -hmm. group of humans need to then cull through those. Um, there's a lot of arduous due diligence, a lot of, you know, sort of reporting burden on um, the, the grantee. And it's really, I think, time where everyone is seeing that there needs to be solutions to fit all of the pieces. And some of the technology companies have been really looking at ways in which they can create some goodwill, not only for consumers and their brand, but I think also employees are pushing a lot of those envelopes inside organizations that they yeah. want their companies to do well and, and really be good corporate citizens, and they want to feel good about their work. So I think the environment has shifted over the last couple of years where there's a a broader sort of understanding that uh, that some of these things can be um, can be addressed at, yeah. at a broader level. And when you were talking earlier about the work of the Gates Foundation and Warren Buffett's um, philanthropic um, work and, and coming together with those dollars, I thought you were going along the lines of the Business Roundtable, which is a group yeah. of yeah. 
high power companies that have come together to say, hey, let's start thinking a little bit differently about, you know, what it means to lead. And of course, we need to look at the balance sheet and, you know, what kind of um, earnings we, um, you know, we produce for investors. But how can we think differently? And there was news this week, I think, of one of the um, organizations that was no longer going to fund um, Goldman. Yeah, Goldman, exactly. Yeah. No longer yeah. going to fund organizations that had all male boards. Right. And you just start seeing some of these social nuances yeah. threaded through traditional capital ecosystems, and you start realizing that things are changing. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting take on the business roundtable is leading traditional business the other direction. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, what, what you're doing is kind of attempting to teach somebody who doesn't know what a browser is that you're actually using a browser. So mm-hmm. you're trying to bring business, like you're trying to bring them over here. Um, it's interesting that you know they're coalescing, hopefully, yeah. somewhere in the middle. Yeah, I think the other thing that we didn't realize starting out is um, the policy implications mm. and our voice in advocacy and understanding the critical importance of system change in order to create an environment in which technology can break through into some of these very traditional environments, whether it's case management or criminal justice or the courts. Mm -hmm. And um, that needs to come together. And so sometimes, you know, policy can't be written until they have a long history of sort of proof and impact. And uh, we're trying to sort of do both simultaneously because of the speed at which you know, data can be um, cultivated, we can hopefully be leaning in on the ability for the market to be opened up while also providing real sort of on-ground support and digital literacy in some ways, comfort level, and bringing the technology pieces that sometimes already exist, but the other side, um, you know, may not be aware of because they don't even know how to ask some of these things right. that, um, right. you know, the private sector may be realizing they can, you know, maybe use a $10 a month software as a service subscription to be able to more effectively project manage where a nonprofit organization uh, has no idea that something like that exists. They wouldn't even know where to search and how to get that because yeah. it's not being marketed to them. They don't even have the words to describe They don't something. know what they don't know. They don't right. know what they don't know. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Okay, so guy within Giving Tech Labs. Can you, so probably context is important here, Mm -hmm. or a little bit of context. So my wife was at a conference and she saw, she sent me a picture of someone giving a presentation on stage with a slide that said, make it your Ikigai. (laughs) And that was you. Serendipitously, she got introduced to you. And so uh, we got introduced and uh, it was fascinating that there is an organization that's using Ikigai as an ethos or as um, you know guiding principles within the organization. So can you talk about that, how it started and how it's used? Sure. I was equally shocked that there was a person that actually was an Ikigai expert. She said, my husband has an Ikigai company, and I about fell off stage. I didn't know that was a thing. So I was really happy to be connected to you. And uh, 
and to be on this journey together and help spread this gospel, as it were, to the world. And I literally will be in Finland in a couple months speaking at a conference, and they asked me to speak on this topic of Ikigai during one of the sessions to help share this model and this mindset with their group of educators for international schools. So that will be a little bit of a different um, style talk than the one that your wife was at. But yes, Ikigai is a really important part of what we do. It is something that Luis, my co-founder, brought to us uh, as a really pivotal point of inspiration, thinking about how much what we're doing at Giving Tech Labs is the culmination of his life's work. And his ikigai, he would say, is technology. My ikigai, I would say, and everyone probably that met me would be pretty clear that my ikigai is human connections. I love connecting with people. And together, we have created an environment where we can create technology not for the replacement of human connection, but to enable human connections. We really believe that. And we started thinking about Ikigai early on in our journey with Giving Tech Labs, but started codifying it more through some of these talks. And I think it started as we were really trying to inspire university students to think differently about their futures. Mm. And instead of rotely marching towards corporate America or that job that they thought that they needed to take, we really were trying to inspire them to think differently about the way they prioritized what they were called to do, sort of on their internal purpose meter that you know we would call Ikigai, and you know what they thought they should do, um, and that we could create this new world where they could do what they're good at, what the world needs, mm-hmm. uh, you know, what they love to do, and ultimately what they could be compensated for, and that they didn't need to choose social work, although social work is a beautiful path, or computer science, that they could find a place in that mm-hmm. example where they could be perhaps coding solutions to help support the, you know, sort of social uh, workers and looking at ways that even perhaps as a technologist, they could go work for nonprofit organizations, which would not have been an employer of choice, probably Mm -hmm. given their um, particular interest. And just starting to understand that there were blended opportunities to think about the way that your life's journey may go and that it didn't need to be something that you sacrificed one for the other. And we see that a lot, that people will either say, I'm going to go travel and do volunteer work in refugee camps in Rwanda, and then I'm going to go work for the man, <laughs> or, right. or or the opposite. Right. They'll say, I've got to pay off student loans. Yeah. I want to start a family. I'm going to go sacrifice my own personal, you know, sort of social justice interest because I want to – you know, be able to provide for my family. And then when I retire, 
I will go, you know, work on, a, you know, pro, bon pro bono, you know, law to help refugees or whatever the scenario is. And so that's where it started. And then we started doing a lot of deep thinking about how we were talking externally about the concept of Ikigai, but that we needed to really turn the mirror on ourselves as an organization and thinking about the way that we could literally use it as a structure for how we thought about our areas of work and the practices where we felt not only, you know, were we good at it, but that we really loved it. And we mm. realized that as entrepreneurs, we were doing a lot of things that we were good at, but we didn't love because those weren't our ikigai, those particular pieces. Mm. Although the work that we're doing on a broad level is really meaningful and we love what we do at Giving Tech Labs, we wanted to find people whose ikigai it was, those areas where we really didn't love that particular piece. And so um, that's how we sort of structured our organization. And so we do think a lot about ikigai personally and as an organization and as a talent development tool. And sometimes as a, um, as a sort of talent shift tool because the reality is is what can start as a beautiful relationship and something that is your ikigai often in a fast-moving startup environment where as you mentioned pivots happen mm -hmm. you know an employee could find themselves in a place where the work itself is no longer their ikigai and we really use that as a as a way to get excited for that person honestly it sounds a little cliche but I've talked to many people and said we want to give you the opportunity to go find your ikigai life is short yeah. and um, there's no sense doing it here uh, if this is not where you feel your biggest area of opportunity is and um, that would be really unfair for us to say that you know you sort of must live this ikigai here at Giving Tech Labs and um, the beautiful piece is that some of our team members that have gone on um, outside the labs have come back to me often almost immediately and said thank you so much mm -hmm. what a gift and yeah. I wouldn't be doing this if I hadn't had the opportunity to think about what it really meant to have all four pieces of that ikigai Venn diagram right. sort of mapped out right. because you usually don't get that luxury to think and you just found, find yourself trapped in one or two parts of the equation and trapped is not the right word. I've never felt trapped, but I think you just sort of um, drift. drift into yeah. a place where you don't think to look on the other side and um, and understand that there is a way in which you really can feel that complete circle. And once you get there, it's so hard to imagine leaving it. So mm -hmm. I will say that um, I almost feel like joy, that character from inside out. I wake up every day and even though I may be tired, yeah. I just feel that and I get really excited talking about Ikigai, talking about social impact and innovation. And I would say the other thing that is really cool about the way in which we operate is creating a learning organization. Mm -hmm. And if you focus on learning in a way that is sometimes even maybe not familiar, uh, we do that with 
work that is uh, looking at behavioral economics or philosophy or deep AI and technical work or novels and cultural books and a lot of different inputs that can get you thinking in a way that you naturally get unstuck. You don't have the luxury to stay in one place. You have to sort of lean in or lean yeah. out around different opinions. And when you are confronted with that opportunity to learn, you navigate naturally in a different you know, place. And so that's been a really cool way to really keep ourselves, I think, um, honest about what we're saying externally to others, ensuring that this is always our EQ guy, and we want to make sure that we check in with our team members and that it's okay if this is no longer theirs, mm -hmm. but hopefully attract people that get really excited about the fact that they get to be in a place where they can thrive doing things that they love and be rewarded for things that they're really good at. So I love that Ikigai is so common in the, in the culture, the, the nomenclature. Um, is, it a f is it formally part of the organization? Like, is it something that, that it is. like on a, on a weekly basis, are you referencing Ikigai multiple times throughout the week? Yeah. Yes, we are. Mm. Um, yeah, you should, if you had an Ikigai word count around Giving Tech Labs, you would <laughs> probably have to get a new clicker. It's definitely something that we talk about, we live it. When we have guests, we are proselytizing. We really do believe in it, and we know that it is the future of work our young people are going to demand it. They're no longer gonna trade one circle for the other. Right. We were just talking today about some of the fellows who have plans after graduation to travel or to take different experiences and have already sort of time boxed what they're going to be doing and where their boundaries are for working in certain types of companies or doing certain kinds of things in a way that 20 or 30 years ago most of us would have just been happy to get any job that right. pays us at all. Right. I remember my first paycheck was from KSTW TV station, and I think it was like $320. Where is KSTW? KSTW is um, in Tacoma, so it's in this market. It's yeah. Channel 11, and we oh, okay. used to have a 10 o'clock news, and I was the assistant public affairs director okay. and really had to work on that title because the official title was public affairs assistant and if this tells you any insight i went to the head of hr and said there isn't a public affairs director so i feel like i should be the assistant public <laughs> affairs director which feels more empowering and more official to the outside so I somehow negotiated at age 22. Um, so yes, the $320 was all mine. But um, but yeah, I think that it's exciting to think about how people that are going to be going into the workforce already without having a name for it, without mm -hmm. knowing the sort of concept of ikigai, are demanding it yeah. of employers, of themselves, yeah. are pushing back on their families and yeah. of norms and really advocating for themselves. Right. I mean, that that's most likely one of the uh, anchors in the business roundtable, right? So as millennials, I think millennials are something like 38% of the U.S. workforce. As those digital natives continue to come up, I can't remember what the stat is, but it's something like 50% of jobs today will be gone in 10 years from now. So if you are 
a college student or a high school student trying to get prepared for what the future of look, work looks like, and you're going down this traditional path and you're seeing things change, what do you do, yeah. right? KSTW, this is a good jumping off point, okay. so let's do the shift here. So I always keep this open-ended. I just say start from the beginning, wherever you want to start. So I want to hear your journey, uh, how someone in media and entertainment ends up in a technology company for nonprofits. Perfect. Um, well, I wouldn't normally start so far back, but um, I think it's a, a testament to my family. And I know that Ikigai and your journey started with you going all the way back to the roots of your family. Right. So just for context, um, my dad was a Cuban immigrant, and he came to the U.S. when he was 10. He left and didn't speak English. He came to the U.S. in foster care homes through the Catholic Church during Operation Peter Pan. So see, I'm going so far back, I wasn't even born yet in this story. Um, but it's important because I think he provided context in my journey um, that is a little bit unique in terms of a traditional path. And uh, so I grew up in Vancouver, Washington, uh, the daughter of a Cuban immigrant. And um, my mom was sort of a, an American farm girl from small town in Oregon. Uh, my parents never graduated from college. They were always hardworking. And I am the oldest. And I always knew I was going to go to college because damn it, my parents didn't come sacrifice what they had for me not to go to college. But also, I think just growing up, I always had this sense of wanting to achieve. And so I was the kid in the first row taking notes. And I think at some point, I got paid $40 in college to take notes for someone else. So I even like got paid to take notes. That was the person I was. And uh, if you read some of my college essays about what I wanted to do, I think it would have said something like I wanted to go into advertising. Not exactly world changing, but something that um, probably came out of all the years of me watching TV and doing homework and listening to radio and just being a kid in the 80s. And that seemed like the most exciting potential opportunity to be able to sort of harness my flair for the dramatic and, and perhaps, you know, <laughs> Uh, love of words and so uh, I, I knew I wanted to go into what now would sort of broadly be you know sort of media and I wasn't exactly sure where but I went to college and uh, I studied communication and I minored in Spanish and a homage to my father who as an immigrant was so teased for having an accent that he did not teach us Spanish mm -hmm. growing up and so that sort of reverse um, acculturation that yeah. now I think is so common. All of us go, gosh, so nice if we would have really um, been raised in that way. And yet it was a different generation. And so I sort of had to, to learn it the hard way. But uh, after college, I did go uh, to KSTW and I was in public affairs, which generally is where um, public broadcasters have a, a duty to uphold their FCC regulation by creating a certain percentage of content that was meeting sort of community need and demonstrated by a variety of different factors. And so I was in charge of the public service announcements and the programming that was addressing specific issues. 
and I got involved in cause marketing and working with the sales team to sort of understand ways that we could do I don't know everything from coats to kids coats for kids mm. sort of winter fundraising drives for um, for supplies two other nuanced areas where I remember do you remember the movie scared straight do you remember where they took teenagers that were sort of on a bad path and they took them behind bars oh, with yeah, real yeah. prisoners to yeah. just sort of scare yeah. the hell out of them? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there was sort of a, a scared straight 20 years later you know, program. And so we would do a lot of those types of um, community initiatives. So I got exposed in that way, I would say early to um, social impact in a very um, community focused way, working with local nonprofit organizations like the United Way and um, the you know local um, schools and and really kind of understanding the role that media played in influencing what was being discussed at the dinner table and that there mm. was this opportunity to not just entertain and have you know um, sort of sitcoms and reruns of Seinfeld, but that you could actually create dynamics that were helping support nonprofit organizations. And uh, from there, I went on to work at um, what started as International Channel, uh, which was a, a digital media um, cable television organization that brought in international content from around the world. And then I started realizing the issues of representation in media, mm -hmm. that if people didn't see faces that looked like them, if they didn't see content that represented their families, um, that there was really a void. And so I started to understand that sort of national scaled impact that media and content had on, mm -hmm. again, how does someone feel about themselves? That small boy that my dad was growing up in foster homes, if he didn't see another Hispanic person on, on TV except for the one that was maybe laughed at or the butt of the jokes or the janitor, how is he going to have that ability to have um, a different view for himself. Right. So I started realizing, yeah. you know, that kind of powerful opportunity to be able to connect to underserved communities and um, had a lot of fun along the way. Eventually, the company was bought by um, Comcast and became part of NBC Universal and got to have a lot of exposure to the media industry where not only large scale negotiations were happening in boardrooms and New York and LA and, and other places of influence, um, but also you know got to hang out in the lobby when Ryan Seacrest or the Kardashians were walking through. So there's definitely that pop culture version of uh, my my job that uh, sort of you know my 14 year old self would have been really excited <laughs> about. Um, so I think there was a narrative sort of woven through, even though I you know spent many years doing media. Uh, that number one, you could create, again, create something once and serve thousands or millions. And number two, the sort of power and responsibility that that holds. And then I think um, the sustainable business side of being able to shift and move through changing technology. And at the time, it wouldn't have been considered technology. There mm -hmm. were literally huge broadcast, um, you know, satellite dishes and um, control rooms where now you can really broadcast from anywhere from a mobile device and have that go global 
mm-hmm. in you know milliseconds yeah. and and reach millions you don't even need that intermediary channel um, but in order to be you know sustainable I saw the broadcasters have to shift through even you know digital world where they had mandates to meet certain criteria and then now of course we have thousands of channels and we can't even imagine you know what that world was like and in a lot of ways I think what the nonprofit sector is trying to shift into feels very similar to mm-hmm. what I watched the sort of analog to digital transition mm-hmm. look like it was painful for the old guard for the guy that yeah. came in and his job literally was to just sort of man the booth make sure that the you know content was playing that the commercials were rolling he's you know in broadcast ops and those jobs don't exist in the same way they did yeah so that is the big journey I guess until um I spent some time thinking about what I wanted to do with that sort of second part of my career after about 20 years in media and uh, met up with Luis and we decided to, to do this and it's been really rewarding to be able to have roots here locally to not forget the aspect of how important it is to have human connection and understand what's happening in your own community, but be able to bring the perspective of um, you know our shared experience and be able to look at the future and help guide, I think, you know these disparate um, stakeholders together in a way that I think is going to feel really exciting when we look back and we'll all sort of say oh my gosh I can't believe that we used to do it that way that's my that's my hope is that utopian village is that there will be needs and there will be solutions and Mm -hmm. there will be funding because all three of those things exist in spades today but they aren't finding each other and we can look back and say wow look at what we could do because in Kentaro Toyama's book Geek Heresy what he showed is that if we look at all the social problems that we have if you think about the indicators of um mortality rate for infants and um, you know poverty index and all of those large-scale social impact metrics they're all moving in the same direction even though we've had these landmark moments of technology innovation if you think about the onset of the internet of personal computers of Mm -hmm. mobile devices all of these things that we've sort of said we're changing the world as technologists here we go and yet they're train tracks moving in the same direction and if yeah. technology really was the answer we should have seen yeah. the crossing of those yeah. lines and the reduction of those indicators and so we really need to get better about figuring out ways that we can harness technology to really help reduce the original problem set and not just sort of report on activities and say we built a bunch of apps though isn't everyone yeah. so happy look at all of these apps that yeah. are out there yeah so earlier you referenced human connection as your ikigai. So I'm going to take it back to you started to move back to giving tech labs. I'm going to pull you back okay. to, to Shelly. Um, is there something like why is human connection your ikigai? Mm-hmm. So when you start back and you think about you know that journey up until this point, is there uh, a moment that comes to mind? Is there a series of experiences? Is it like how what influenced Human connection. Is this your Oprah your, moment? Your You're like going to go for the. We're going for the it. The dramatic tears. Um, I think that 
Yeah, there's so many ways to answer that. Um, number one, just on a lighthearted note, I probably came out talking. So I think in general, the, <laughs> the ability to connect to, to people um, was probably natural um, in many ways uh, that uh, it's sort of hard not, um, you know, for me not to connect. Um, but I think on a personal note and just a, a deeper level, I think we've seen so much sadness and loneliness and isolation mm -hmm. in our culture and I've certainly had people very close to me that just got lost mm -hmm. and um, I think if we can try to model the importance of human connection not just by saying it's important but by doing it and, and help show what that really means and it doesn't mean having a certain number of social media followers it means empathizing and anticipating, I think, often, you know, moments where people may need to just be checked in on, I think, and having connections that are real and authentic and also understanding the ability to use your platform in a way that doesn't replace the personal connection. Um, so for example, even though I was speaking in that um, story you told in front of hundreds of people, I was able to connect with someone who introduced me to your wife, mm -hmm. who introduced me to you. Mm -hmm. And that was because of the personal, the human connection, not about the fact that my company had created a software solution that was being featured at this conference not about the big or the technology. Mm -hmm. It was about the fact that there was a connection point between you and I as people. But I think that happens so much in our lives. Yeah. And in fact, the way that I met Luis um, is a little bit of a personal story about human connection in that we were just two strangers traveling. And as we all do thousands of times, you see people on the bus or on the plane or in a public space and maybe you make eye contact, maybe you don't. You could easily be on your device listening with your headphones. But uh, we sat next to each other on a plane and we got to talking and literally it's because of a human connection that I get to live my ikigai mm. and that we were able to create this story together. Yeah. And um, it's not you know, to say that you can't have headphones on, but I do want to encourage people to look at people in the eyes, to see what their story is, to ask questions, to see when people are in pain right. and be able to understand that it's not just about waiting for them to ask for help. Sometimes you need to be able to be there anyway. And um, I just, I, I think it's just the most important thing that we continue to preserve because we are at a sort of I don't know, we're at a crossroads, I think, a little bit. Of, as yeah. a culture, I see it in my own children that I want to make sure that, um, yes, as digital natives, they feel connected to the world in a macro sense, but not at the sort of, um, I guess, 
detriment to the ability to have a communication that yeah. is face to face or maybe picking up a phone or asking a friend if they're okay or sending a thank you note. I know that sounds so archaic, but those moments where you can create connection mm-hmm. that um, just means that you took one extra minute of your day to make the other person feel good right. instead of creating this me first culture that it's all about the ego. Right. And I don't know how we do that, but I think that if I can try to create human connection through the technology we build, mm-hmm. through interactions that hopefully I can model, sometimes it's too much connection. Maybe people say, oh my gosh, Shelly, okay, I'm all right, all right, I'm all right. But, um, but I think just being there, showing up, and yeah. um, to find those moments to, um, to just talk to people is fascinating. And we have so much information coming at us in so many different ways that it can feel odd sometimes to take a moment to connect with a human, and yet it's so important. Yeah, as a society, we're still trying to figure it out, right? I mean, is that one of the pressing issues that Giving Tech Labs is looking at or focused on currently? Absolutely. We're focusing a lot on on human services in general um, Mm -hmm. as a sort of stake in the ground at ways that we feel you know most passionately connected to although that's a broad area and then working with organizations like Special Olympics International Mm. as an organization that focuses on inclusion and the power of play and connection to really fundamentally change families and experiences we really want to ensure that information is accessible to all but they were really empowering those forces that have done so much good. And in the case of that organization, they've been operating for over 50 years. They're doing so much good. Yeah. So how can we continue to have voices like uh, Loretta, who is one of their athletes, and she's a self-advocate who has intellectual challenges but serves on their board and one of their thought leaders and is the most dynamic, engaging, you know, person and her ability to have an authentic connection is actually a superpower that most tech executives and, you know, fully capable scholars have the opportunity to learn from. And so, yeah, we definitely are focusing on human connection in our work. And uh, a lot of the work we're doing with Vita Nix is focusing on children who have experienced trauma and even we're working with a woman who is um, a sexual assault advocate and has experienced tremendous um, I guess adversity in first being raped and then going to hospitals and finding out that she was turned away because they weren't able to conduct a rape kit Mm -hmm. and then learning later that legislation was not in place in order to even provide access to care for survivors and those moments you know seemingly have nothing to do with technology and so what our job is to interpret where the problems are and how can we better connect people to each other not just to systems or um, you know to you know which hospital to go to in that example but even to be able to help the helpers I think oftentimes if a friend came to me and said, Shelly, I was just raped, you know, what would be my response? And I I probably would have just fumbled through my phone to search 
where to go after rape or some mm-hmm. other, you know, strange assemblance of words in that moment. Or intuitively might have said, well, just call 911 or we're just going to drive to the hospital or we're going to go file a police report. And so how do we help those people that are trusted advocates and part of, you know, that inner circle for all of us, whether you see someone in pain on the street or a friend comes to you with addiction or mental health, it's often not that that needs a tech solution to come in between the human connection, but in order to support providing care, you really need to be able to help harness um, that moment so that that person doesn't sort of say, well, forget it, no one can help, or you may be given misinformation. So we've worked with um, advocacy organizations around um, addiction and mental health and so many areas, I think, uh, providing that support to ensure that you don't even further create more problems for that person. And we've seen, you know, sadly, what can happen if intervention, you know, doesn't come in the right time, you know, in terms of a lot of the suicide and, um, and really sad, um, you know, sad experiences that many young people have had to go through alone. Mm. And now that we've, I think, raised awareness as a culture about um, inclusion, whether it's LGBTQ or um, about the Me Too movement, what happens when you know, someone does share that moment with you. Do you know how to connect them and to be able to have space for it? And sometimes that might mean using technology solutions to help you, but not, mm. you know, as a replacement. Yeah. Second Mountain, the book mm. Second Mountain. Can you just talk about, maybe not necessarily that book, but that philosophy yeah. and how it's impacted you and how it's leading you moving forward? Sure. I'm not getting paid by the publisher, but uh, the second mountain really was something that uh, was powerful for me because I realized in retrospect that I had lived it and I wished that I had known that this was something that was common to others. I think, again, going back to that isolation mentality, everyone sort of thinks they go through something that's unique or special. Mm. Every organization thinks their problem is their own. And if we can, as a society, sort of say, no, 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 here are the tea leaves. Like, let me help you. Come come here. Um, The Second Mountain by David Brooks really kind of talks about the fact that he, like most of us, was raised to create this run up the ladder of success, of expectation, of doing the right thing to go to school and get a job and get married and have a family and really continue up what he calls the first mountain. But the problem with that is even when you get on top, you don't feel fulfilled. And I could look back at my own experience and recognize that, that I wasn't ever unhappy. I had gotten to a wonderful place in my career where I had uh, done incredible things, traveled the world, uh, worked in an organization for 16 years um, at the longest stint, and yet I felt that there was something missing. And by that time, I have 
two children, and by all measures on paper, I should have been very content for the rest of my life to have said that I was a media executive, a mom of two healthy kids, a happy marriage, lots of friends and family. And what I realized was that I kind of came off that first mountain and sat in this valley for a while, which for me took the phase of I took six months off to do a remodel of our house and spend some time being a stay-at-home mom and um, being there for those moments that I had missed after so many years of business travel. And David Brooks really talks about this opportunity to build what he refers to as the second mountain, which is not about what others think you should do or not about what society measures success as but really rooting yourself in your community and having those connections and that impact in a way that feels really personally meaningful so he didn't use any reference to ikigai although you could certainly write to him maybe he'll add it in a a second edition but i think what he described was maybe less on um the maybe professional side, but more in connecting your purpose, your really true purpose when you can pull everything else aside and you don't worry about what other people think or about um, you know, how much is in your bank account, but you really think about what is the legacy that you want to leave behind. And on your second mountain, usually by definition, you've sort of seen a few things and you, know, you might be later in life or later in career Um, But having that perspective that you still have another climb, that you still have another mountain and somewhere that you can get to that may be different, um, but in some ways um, so much more powerful. And so uh, you'll have to read the book. There are lots of strands in terms of spiritual connection and connection to literally your neighbors in your neighborhood going all the way down to the fundamental ways that we used to live as a society many years ago before we all moved away and became really isolated inside our homes and connected you know through technology and so I thought a lot about that and I realized that with giving tech labs if we never made a dollar if I you know was never at a position to have the kind of global impact that I had hoped that it would still be my second mountain because I'm here doing what I love. I'm able to wake up every day excited to look at my children in the eyes and tell them that I'm going to go do great things that are really fulfilling to me. And um, so now that I can recognize what it feels like to be both at the top of your first mountain and in the valley sort of trying to look for the directional signs I recognize it in others and I think that um, you know people would attest that I now am probably you know telling them to go find their ikigai go find your ikigai um go find your second mountain but once you've been there you recognize that um this is it's a journey and you can create it and the exciting part is no matter what you've done in the past it's completely irrelevant you get to leave it all at the door and you figure out you know what your second mountain is and once you get there it's really exciting i have a friend that loves dogs and she has spent the last 20 years doing video production and editing for reality tv shows in la and i told her why don't you just like open a dog lounge Mm -hmm. or be a dog walker or 
do anything that makes you happy. Go work for a company that lets you bring your dog. Like, let's just focus on maybe finding a city that is super dog friendly. Like, move your whole orientation around what you love because you're the only one that gets to be you. So mm. go be you. And if it's not making you feel really fulfilled, then it means it's it's not your mountain. So you're okay to step off this mountain and sit for a minute and do a little bit of soul searching till you find it. So you're leading right into my final question. For those who are on that first mountain and they had that same feeling, like on paper looks great, but internally I'm not fulfilled, but who am I to do something like that? Or why would I do that? Because that, on paper, everything looks okay. So for that person who's listening right now, what advice would you give to that person? Well, I mean, I think you have to look at the real, the realistic boundaries that you, that you have. So I don't want to tell anyone, go leave your job, go mm. leave your life, go do what moves you because you may have bills to pay and mouths to feed. So I think, you know, first you want to make sure that you can really operate in a place that is feasible. And once you sort of understand what your boundaries are, maybe that's geographic or maybe that's time-based or maybe that's, you know, figuring out something um, within the construct, even in your current job or scenario, but where can you find space and time for yourself, not in a go to yoga class kind of way, but just some think space um, to create a little bit of a plan. And a plan is not that, you know, I'm going to go start a company in a year. To me, that might be a goal, that might be an outcome, but for me, a plan would be, okay, I'm going to go talk to five people that are doing something that I might want to do. I'm really going to go on a learning journey. I'm going to think about reading some books or watching some podcasts or, you know, or listening to podcasts, I guess, as it were. But thinking about how can you learn and start thinking about options if you had every option available to you. Mm -hmm. And I think that that helps you get unstuck. And those things may be journeys that have to do with a career. They may be an exploration of a new talent, whether that's cooking or it is getting a certification for something, learning something new, because you can't start unless you start. And right. people sometimes tell me, well, I wanna go do this. And I go, yeah. well, do you know if that job is available? Do you know how much money that makes? Do you know if you're qualified? How do you know you would like that? Have you done any research? And the answer is usually no. Mm -hmm. And so I would say, make a plan to start thinking about what that new thing might look like and then really actually research. Like, are there classes? Are there people? Are there people in my network that might know something? Um, because you can try before you buy. You can sort of think through, oh, gosh, I really want to be a chef, but I didn't realize what that means is that I need to work nights and weekends every you know every single week yeah. and i need to cut my salary in half and i need to go you know get a food safety handler's permit and i need to go do this so find out and maybe those things are going to be worth it for you but i think just having a hope 
that it will change, that your mountain will one day just sort of appear before you is mm-hmm. a little short-sighted. So I would say ask questions, make some human connections, and um, and then you know start having a really good look in the mirror and think about whether or not this is where you en- want to end up. And if it is where you want to end up, maybe you are really lucky and you ended up creating the life you wanted for yourself. But um, I think you have to put it in perspective of who would you disappoint if you changed course. Mm-hmm. And usually the answer is yourself. Right, right. It's not your spouse. It's not your parents. They yeah. usually want you to be happy. And yeah. it's really just that you may need to change your own narrative. So read that book and then you'll get a little bit of mojo. Well, what I love that you're saying right there is there is the, the valley. Because at some point you have to place a bet. Mm-hmm. So you can do all the networking the conversations the research but at some point at some point you have to say i'm going to take this leap and hope that it hope that it works is there um so just the final thought when you reflect back was there a point where you had done all of your research you had your data set in front of you and you said this is it well I'm really lucky that I had someone to go on this journey with, um, with Giving Tech Labs, with Luis, Mm -hmm. that believed in me more than I believed in myself. So I would say if you are given a choice between going anywhere alone and and taking Mm -hmm. a journey with someone else, whether that's your life partner or a business partner or someone else that you can lean on in a partnership, it's always easier because it does help mitigate risk in some ways because even on your worst day to have someone there in the trenches with is a really um, powerful experience and so I knew that even if I failed that I was going to be doing something I'd never done before and I was going to be doing something with someone who was going to help me see that what I saw as failure might have just been opening a new door. And um, the other piece is, I think, just knowing that you can always go back. We have this strange narrative that plays through our head that like you have to just do something and keep doing it, and it's your fault if you made the wrong choice. And I think it's okay to sort of say, well, I'm gonna give this a shot, and what is the worst that will happen? Maybe go look for a job. That's okay. Yeah, but what if you didn't do it? And I, um, I sort of think about the analogy of shopping. And I'll leave this final thought so it will hopefully put things in perspective. But if I'm shopping and I see something I want, I used to have the buyer's remorse of not buying it. And now I buy it every single time because this is what I have learned. You can always take it back. But damn it, doesn't it? feel so frustrating when you don't buy the thing you want and then it's out of stock, it's sold out and you missed your opportunity. So I would say if you keep that mindset that there is a return policy on life, like you are still living and breathing and you can go right and then go left. You can move and shift as opportunities change, but go for it because if you don't, you'll always think what if, and if you did it, you won't have to worry about it. And you can say, I did it. I tried that. That didn't work. But I'm so glad that I have that life experience. Perfect cap. Thank you.
so much. Thank Loved you. it. Loved it. Don't have buyer's remorse.